Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is John Magney of the Subdudes, a Denver native and longtime Fort Collins resident who has also felt very much at home in New Orleans. The Subdudes kicked off the Americana genre before the term became commonplace, and the band has gone on to become one of America's enduring musical treasures. Welcome, John. All right, all right. Thank you, G. You grew up in East Denver, the second oldest of eight children, and graduated from Cathedral High School. <laughs> That's right, uh huh? No longer in existence. No, no. I had a funny experience with this whole parochial thing. I went to a grade school, elementary school, called St. Philomena's. And after I left St. Philomena's a few years later, they took her sainthood away from her. <laughs> and <laughs> and the church you know. actually disappeared. They actually tore the church down. And then I went to Cathedral High School. And a few years later after that, they tore that school down. They didn't take Cathedral's sainthood away, I guess. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know how to interpret that. Is it after I left, fell you apart, know, no use or anymore, or was it the curse? seeds of destruction? Yes, yeah. that would be my guess. <laughs> what kind of Catholic boy were you? I was totally dedicated. Yeah? Yeah, up to a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> Probably going along with puberty, I would say then things changed. <laughs> but no, when I was little, I wanted to be a great martyr. That was my goal. I wanted to suffer the most. <laughs> Musically, you weren't a prodigy. You didn't find yourself in music until you were college-aged, right? Well, that would be as a practice or a profession. All the time I grew up, I was intensely into music. I was a listener. In grade school, I played the trumpet in the band, and I was always playing the guitar and working on Beatles songs. But no, I never got into a band till I was 21. And my main instrument, piano, I just started playing at 21. You started your musical path, though, as a blues harp player. Yes, that's true. I could play the harp. I'd been playing it on camping trips and stuff. <laughs> when I got into my first band here in Denver, Meatball, it was really the Righteous Meatball Boogity Band, which was named for a Zap Comics about this magic meatball the righteous meatball that escaped from its plate and when it would bounce on people they'd become enlightened mm -hmm. the name you don't really get the <laughs> essence of the the whole meaning so deep but anyway meatball my first band in denver here i played harmonica because they would let me play that <laughs> meanwhile i was learning the piano and they let me bring that in because I bought one. And there was a sax player who actually played better than me, so that kept me in the band. But I eventually learned how to play the piano. Following the meatball lineage, you moved to Steamboat Springs That's after right. a spell. We were a blues band when we were playing down here on South Broadway. The Infinity on First and Broadway, that was our main gig. Then we had a friend who had moved up by Steamboat Springs between there and Oak Creek, Colorado. It was a ranch, 
that they let us rent. It was actually hippie commune. There was, oh, five band members and six women and 12 dogs. So we all lived out there on this ranch. I think felt the influence of the country and we started playing more Bob Wills and Willie Nelson and stuff like that. Was that a fertile territory for gigging? In Steamboat, we would play the ski resorts. And then in Oak Creek, we would play for all the people that worked at the ski resorts. And we would dip down to Aspen and yeah, we were playing a lot. You finally sat down at the piano for good and somewhere along the way, you developed a thing for New Orleans piano. Yeah. That polyrhythmic role that they mm, got from yeah, the Caribbean. Yeah. That's right. There's a whole lot of Caribbean influence there, Latin American influence of rumba, along with blues and rock and roll. The great thing about New Orleans is that the music was defined by piano players and horn players. And of course, old traditional jazz, always great drumming. I was up there in Steamboat Springs listening to all these things. There was a couple of heroes. One of them was James Booker, who was like a child prodigy and combined playing classical music with blues. And then there was Professor Longhair, who wrote some of the classic New Orleans Mardi Gras tunes and definitely had that polyrhythmic thing going on. We were up there in Steamboat Springs really for just a year and a half, and our guitar player got married and quit music, and it gave me the chance to do what I'd always wanted to do, which was move to New Orleans. And you got the opportunity to actually intersect with your heroes. Both of those guys I got to know and hang out with a lot. Down the road, down the road, whoa. James Booker, he was a crazy dude. He had an eye patch, only saw out of one eye. He was a junkie. He couldn't drive, so I was very valuable to him because I had a car. <laughs> and I would go pick him up pretty much every evening, and we'd take him all around town and different places. And he was always real generous with showing me things on the piano, mostly because he knew I'd never be able to really do them. <laughs> he was just an incredible pianist. He played the Chopin Minute Waltz. And then he'd play some deep blues song. Then Professor Longhair, I did not know that he hadn't even been active for about 10 years. He had a job sweeping up a record shop down there in New Orleans. Within months of when I showed up there, these kids, music lovers in New Orleans, they brought him out of retirement, started giving him gigs, and started this place called Tipitina's, which was named after a Professor Longhair song. And 
revived him in his career. He had about six years there. He just went great guns, and then he passed on. He was equally generous? Actually, one time he told me that he liked the way I played Big Chief. So that's... It's like getting communion from the Pope. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was canonized or something like that. What Big Chief is is a Mardi Gras tune. It is like a test for a piano player. It's very technical. It goes in this hand, and then it's got an offer of the in that hand. If you can complete the test of Big Chief, then you're somewhere in the New Orleans music school. As an aside, I heard you did better than Dr. John. Oh, you? did I tell you that? I didn't want to brag like that, but yeah, that's actually what he told me. He said, well, I played well, it better than Dr. John. <laughs> and you also soaked up the New Orleans rock bands. Yeah. One of your groups, Black Male, yeah. was actually that part was, of the Meters heritage. It was, yeah. So somehow this white dude from Colorado, I end up in this band, Black Male, spelled M-A-L-E, And they were the guys who were four years younger than the Meters. And Meters, just the seminal funk band, they really made up the whole funk genre. Just a great New Orleans band. So I played with the younger Meters in Blackmail. We recorded 145, Let's Get At It on one side and Be For Real on the other side. Got a little airplay in New Orleans. That was actually my first intro to New Orleans. You formed Little Queenie and the Percolators in the late 1970s with Lee Harris, Little Queenie. Mm -hmm. The Percolators emerged as a very popular band in New Orleans based on her vocal prowess, and I also understand she was a pretty good partier. Yes, she was. She was just pretty hot in every way. (laughs) Little Queenie, uh, she was beautiful and shaved her eyebrows off and dyed her hair bright orange and wrote really good songs and really sang good. to big time, but just didn't seem to want it. Anyway, we had a really great band there for five or six years. And toward the end of that band, Tommy Malone became our guitar player. And from there, after Lil' Queenie and the Percolators broke up, then we got the sub dudes together. The Continental Drifters? We actually were the Continental Drifters first. And that was a larger band. We just kept getting louder and louder and get larger equipment, you know. <laughs> and I had this huge keyboard rig, two keyboards and amps, and we finished one gig at a place called Jimmy's. And my good wife, Kathy, told me, you guys might have good songs, but nobody could hear it, really. <laughs> Can't hear what you're singing. The words might be good, but... So in reaction to that, Tommy Malone was in that band, too, and then Steve Amadeo, so... 
we said, well, we should just try to go and be subdued in our presentation. We'll just do a lot of harmonies, and everybody has to bring the least that they can play on. So instead of all my keyboards, I brought an accordion. Instead of the drums, Steve brought a tambourine and a, a wooden spatula. <laughs> and then Tommy Malone and Johnny Allen both played acoustic guitars. So we played at Tipitina's on a Monday night, which actually was my piano night. They had piano player every Monday night. When we went to sound check, Steve hit his tambourine, and there happened to be a whole lot of bass on the mic. And it gave this sound like a big old huge bass drum. So he started moving his finger around on the tambourine and realized he could get every drum by tightening it or loosening it. And then the jingles were like hi-hat. So he invented the style right there of a whole drum set in the tambourine. And then doing the songs we'd been doing, but just with a lot of harmony and not drowning it out with amps and stuff, my wife and a number of people said, that's it. The joke, we'll be subdued, just became the name. We'll be the subdudes. An amazing, spontaneous gig. The thing we had before the Continental Drifters was very much put together and thought out. And of course, this little offhand thing was the thing. thing. <laughs> it had the magic. This was March 1987 when the subdudes were mm -hmm. born. Steve banging that tambourine, making it sound like a full drum kit. Tommy, a heck of a singer yeah. and guitarist. Yeah. Johnny Ray Allen on bass and a very savvy songwriter. Very good songwriter. And yeah. you, piano player and accordion, a little portable keyboard. How much experience <laughs> had you had on the accordion to that, that point? That was when I started, our first <laughs> night there. <laughs> I transferred things I knew from the piano, but then had to get how to work the air. And it was funny because in New Orleans, we only had our one night a week. It was at the Maple Leaf on Tuesday nights. And we had this feeling that we just needed to go somewhere or we were going to, I don't know, die, I guess. <laughs> so we ended up moving to Fort Collins, Colorado. I dragged everybody up here. Families? Yeah, families, everybody. And we just jumped in. We got a lot of work. That was our main aim, is to be able to play our original stuff. And most of our gigs the first year actually was in Wyoming. We were driving all around Wyoming. <laughs> Steve was doing this tambourine all night, and I was pumping this accordion. We both had tendonitis, <laughs> our new instruments. <laughs> but we were making money. Backtracking to the New Orleans scene, the idea of you being small fish in a big pond, that's part of the musical heritage there in general. A lot of music pouring out of every crack in that town, but stays on the street. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's never been any music business above that level. Some managers here and there and some recording studios. The beauty of it is that it does pour out of the cracks of the sidewalk, but most cases it is taken to go somewhere where it'll be appreciated and recorded and managed so you moved to fort collins where it yeah. was quiet and inexpensive right. <laughs> you took denver by storm almost immediately you were a fixture at herman's hideaway on south yeah. broadway you had a following of loyalists oh, who packed uh -huh. the place every time 
you took second place in Musician Magazine's Best Unsigned Band contest. Yeah. There are fans who think you never sounded as good as you did on that first Red Label cassette demo yeah. tape that you made. <laughs> I think that's true. And my wife produced that cassette, actually. <laughs> Kathy did. Yeah, she paid for it. We did four songs of those eight songs in New Orleans. And then the next four we did at Coop Studios in Boulder and put out this little cassette tape. And dang, if KBCO Radio didn't start playing it off of the cassette, which they just didn't really do with anybody else. And between that and the Musician Magazine and just getting a buzz going, within a year that we had moved up here, we actually had our choice of record labels, and we went with Atlantic. What a wreck is mine. was the end of 1988. There was even an official ceremony in Governor Roy Romer's office yeah. because you were the first Colorado band in many years to sign with a major yeah. label. Yeah, that was so great. We went down to the Capitol building and signed our first record deal with Roy Romer there. Did you wear a tie? So sweet. I did wear a tie. <laughs> I remember because I have this picture of my dad straightening out my tie before going in because I didn't know how to tie a tie. <laughs> <laughs> that first album titled In a Fit of Originality, The Subdudes. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Huh? Things started popping. You had the support of so many peers, Huey Lewis, Bonnie mm -hmm. Raitt, Bruce Hornsby, Linda Ronstadt, yeah. John Hyatt. They yeah. all loved you guys and adopted you. That album was produced by Don Gaiman, mm -hmm. who'd gotten such tight acoustic guitar sounds for John Mellencamp in mm -hmm. the 80s. The subdued story, well, in general with record companies is that we really got treated well, got really good budgets, got really good publishing advances, and really didn't make anybody much money, <laughs> which is so different from most acts that you hear that have been with the record companies. Like, ah, they could have done this, they could have done that. But I swear Atlantic gave us a first-class ride, and it just didn't take to the radio in an alternate universe somewhere, Need Somebody is one of the biggest mm. hit singles of all time. We were a favorite with a lot of musicians and with the brass of Atlantic, who was Ahmet Erdogan and his brother. They would have the subdudes for their personal parties. And meanwhile, we were losing them a lot of money. But <laughs> for some reason, this girl, Debbie Gibson, had ended up on Atlantic Records. And she had a huge hit, and I think she was paying for the subdudes and Maybe a couple of the bands that Ahmet liked, you know. I'm so tired. 
Atlantic issued a pair of records, and mm -hmm. the Sudbeads then shifted to High Street, a mm -hmm. label that was a subsidiary of Wyndham Hill, right? the New Age label. Two more albums. Annunciation was helmed mm -hmm. by another legendary producer, Glenn Johns, yeah. who'd worked with most of the classic rock acts yeah. of the 70s. Uh -huh. A rock and roll hall of fame producer and engineer. Oh, it was great. Well, it was everything, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we got to go over to Europe, got to go to England, and to Glenn John's farm, which he made into a studio. We got to hear a lot of great stories about all the British idols he had worked with, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, people like that. He grew up in a little town with Jimmy Page, and they used to drive up to London together when they were teenagers. On the other hand, a week into the project, we got dropped by Atlantic. <laughs> they tried to pull the plug on the whole project, and Glenn Johns threw such a fit that they kept it going <laughs> and then dropped us after it had been completed. So that record, a year later, when we went to this new High Street label, they bought those tracks, and then we went to New Orleans and recorded the other half. Uh, on Annunciation Street. That record was actually the England stuff and the New Orleans stuff. The Subdudes toured hard and earned a ton of loyal fans, but the sheen of success started to fade a bit. There were some musical snares as well. By 1996, the band had worn out a bit. Yeah, that's right. We had an arrangement with myself and Tommy, both bringing in mostly music and some words, and then Johnny Allen was a real good word man. We were going back and forth and collaborating a lot, and then that process just fell apart. I think it just does for just about anybody. You kind of burn through everything that you got, and then you just need a break. So we did that. Projects, Tiny Town for yeah. Tommy mm -hmm. and Johnny, Three Twins for yeah. you and Steve. Yeah. You did some great work for a spell with Tim O'Brien's band. Yeah. I always loved John McEwen's term when the dudes were on I Hate Us. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, you formed a group called Magpie uh -huh. with Steve Amadei, and you did a solo album. Right. Titled, in another fit of originality, Magni. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else had used that. <laughs> <laughs> but all wonderful work. I know that was a shift in terms uh -huh. of being on major labels and touring behind these projects. You worked odd jobs to support your family. I always admired that. Your beautiful wife, Kathy. Congrats, 41 years, yeah. You put two kids through college at CSU. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Ups and downs.
then came the Subdudes reunion in 2002, touring again as the Dudes, and then reverted to the name Subdudes a year yeah, later. Yeah. And the band sounded as vibrant as ever. On record, Miracle Mule, then Behind the Levee. Right. Which was produced by Keb Moe. Keb Moe. Mo. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. An old friend. Yeah, Keb Moe used to go around opening for the Subdudes when he had his first record, and we got to know him really good. That record yielded a minor hit, Papa Dookie and the Mud People. Uh huh, yeah. I think yeah. most people know it from its refrain Love is a Beautiful Thing. Uh huh. That song was somewhat autobiographical. That whole record was interesting, released just prior to Katrina hitting New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really a strange thing in that we recorded it in the winter uh, and spring before Katrina. And we had already written these songs about Behind the Levee and another song called Your Home is Right Here Next to Me and a few songs that just seemed like they were about Katrina and the effects of it. The hurricane happened, and then the record came out, and it all seemed like we were fortune tellers or something. But that was a great experience with Keb Moe. We recorded that out around Lafayette, Louisiana, at a place called Dock of the Bay. And all of us are real foodies, especially Keb. Actually, his people came from around that area before they moved out to L.A., which is where he grew up we would find a different gumbo every day because every surrounding town around Lafayette has its own gumbo and it's all a little bit different and they all think they're the best. (laughs) And that's honorable work. Yeah. (laughs) It actually made things hard because that got to be the most important part of every day. (laughs) No kidding. And so we'd be recording for an hour and then where we're going to go get gumbo today, and it'd be New Iberia, you know, an hour and a half away. And so we'd take three hours eating, come back, we'd be all tired, and have to take a nap, and then we'd end up recording at night. It was all dictated by the food. Subdudes continued to tour. Jimmy Mesa was in the mm. band yeah. at that juncture. And Tim Cook on bass mm-hmm. deserves special mention. Tim right. had always been a big part of the Subdudes. That's right. Serving as road manager in the early <laughs> days. Well, he started out selling CDs and then he started driving the van and then he became the tour manager and then he became the bass player. <laughs> and songwriter. He's a good songwriter too. It's good you promote from within. That's yeah. There was a brief reunion with Johnny Ray Allen in 2014. The band had been reanimated, and then Johnny suddenly passed. Shocked everyone. And to go back, what happened is at the end of the first Subdued era there in 96, we did have some bad feelings going on. So when we got back together, Johnny wasn't part of that band. 
that's why we had Jimmy Messa on bass and also Tim Cook, and they would trade. Sometimes Jimmy would play guitar and Tim would play percussion. So we had the five guys there for the next nine or ten years. And those feelings were still there, though, with Johnny. Well, at the funeral of another friend of ours down in New Orleans, he made a big push. Man, we got to get the band back together. And we did for the funeral, and then we got it all going again. And it was great to smooth out some of these old feelings and start playing again. And yeah, dang, if four months into it, he died. Then Tim Cook got drafted back in, and we've kept going since then. But Johnny got us going again. Treme was an yeah. HBO series set in uh, New Orleans in the aftermath of Katrina storyline about residents trying to rebuild their lives and homes and the unique culture down there. And the subdued stature as mm, Crescent mm-hmm. City musicians mm-hmm. was reflected in the show. You were included both individually and as a group. I thought I could have used a little more makeup, but... You know. <laughs> <laughs> David Simon and his partner were really music nuts. They were the guys who had done the Wire series. So they did this series about New Orleans, Treme, and everybody there in New Orleans agrees that they got New Orleans more than any movie or TV thing had before. Because it was kind of rough. New Orleans is a very sweet place, and it's a very rough place. And they really got the flavor of it and were just so much into music that they featured a whole lot of local bands. It was great for the whole music community of New Orleans. Subdude's got some great spots in it. Carved in stone is a name I will remember. Yeah, baby. Skin and bone. And me personally, I got a nice spot in it as a piano player. Kind of cemented your look to viewers everywhere. Marty Jones, a great Colorado artist in his own right, yeah. once described you with your cool soul patch and swept back gray hair. You resembled a Civil War era snake oil salesman. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> like a flim flam man, right? Something yeah. like that. Yeah, all right. The but flim more, and the flam. But more elegant, John. It's not Well, easy look, to... one of my favorite heroes is the Wizard of Oz. He was a snake oil salesman with a good heart. Your greatest contribution to Colorado music might be that you have never turned down the opportunity to help out and play on other people's recordings, putting a little of your grease on their yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. From Celeste Krenz to mm-hmm. Rich Moore and Molly O'Brien to Dave Zobel. I'm an Iowa. Mary Flower, to Marty Jones, mm. to Liz Barnez, mm-hmm. to Chris Daniels, Wind mm-hmm. Machine. The list is so mm-hmm. extensive. Bless you for that. You've well, got the best reputation of anyone in our fair state. Thank you. When they call about going to the studio, I say, nice work if you can get it. I love to do that, to go and add to somebody's music, give them the flavor that they want to hear. That hot sauce. Yeah. That- <laughs> You still live in Fort Collins? Yeah. There's been good music energy going up there for a good while now. And we have our benefactress, Pat Stryker, up there. Bohemian Foundation just keeps putting on more concerts and building more venues and just stimulating music in general. The subdudes have figured out that you are best when you're together. 
we are writing a whole new record. This will be the first in 12 years of original stuff. You're a lifer. You've endured the ups and downs, the fabulous music biz. You just want to play music for people. It's mm. always been pretty simple. I can remember back to when I did first get into music and was entering the band Meatball. I mean, the Righteous Meatball Boogity Band. <laughs> and to be able to play music and not pay for beer was to me like I had reached what I wanted. And it's been that way ever since. <laughs> beer has gotten more expensive. <laughs> you know, it's the same theory. I really feel like I'm just getting over to be able to play music for a living because I would just be doing it anyway. The thing that excites me every day still is that new song or that new sound we might hit recording. That's still the blood in my veins. We will put that in. John, what's your favorite musician's joke? Billy, the young prospector, and Zeke, the older prospector. They're going up to the mountains. They're going to find that gold. They're bound and determined. They know a spot, and all of a sudden, there's drums. Boom, boom, boom. The older one, Zeke, says, Billy, stop. This could be Native American burial grounds. We can't just go pickaxe any rock up there. Young Billy says, come on, old man. You're not chickening out now, are you? And so reluctantly, they go on. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. And Zeke says, Billy, I do not like the sound of them drums. And one Native American jumps up from behind a rock. He said, that's not our regular drummer. <laughs> Thank you, <man. laughs> the Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music dot org.